Please listen to the disclaimer at the end of this episode. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today is a very timely topic around the coronavirus or COVID-19. We're not going to talk about the health aspects, which, of course, everybody should be watching what the CDC has to say or the World Health Organization. Today, we're going to focus on the financial aspect of what's going on and what you should be doing with this apparent downturn. J.C. Corrigan, who has been my guest for all of my financial episodes, was gracious enough to spend some time with us today to make sure that we're not panicking and we have a plan with this kind of downturn and also what we should be doing in the months to come. J.C., thanks for taking some time today. No problem, Greg. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me again. Maybe to set the stage, let's just talk about terms. What is the definition of correction? What is the definition of recession or bear market? So we know when we read these things in Wall Street Journal or otherwise, what we're saying. Right. So a correction is when the market goes down 10% from its peak value. So we've already had that experience. And as we speak today, when the World Health Organization officially declared the coronavirus a pandemic, we had a sharp sell-off, and we are now what's called a bear market with a where the value drops 20% from the peak. Now, is it going to close there at the end of the day, which is the only value that matters? I don't know. However, as the news flow continues, it seems to get people in a bad place. A bull market would be when the market recovers 20%, from whatever its low position is from any particular peak to trough drop. Is there any notable difference when somebody uses the word recession versus bear market? No, they're usually tied together. Um, The one thing I would tell people to look at, a recession is more about the GDP. And if we have consecutive quarters of negative um, gross domestic product, that is when their definition of a recession is. I tend to look at the employment numbers because that tends to be a coincident or leading indicator, depending on what you look at, to a recession. But those seem, given the power of the consumer in the United States, that tends to be a a good indicator of when a recession is coming. As of right now, that is not showing up. So now that we have a grounding on those terms, and for somebody my age, the only experience that I've had with a recession or bear market would have been back in 2008. So I am an old millennial. And I would say speaking for millennials, the experience you had then was the beginning of student debt, i.e. it was harder to get a job because the job market wasn't so good and you might have those mounting bills. But the amount of money that you have to be able to put into your retirement and where you're going for that wasn't as much of a consideration as it would be for Gen Xers into baby boomers in that particular scenario. And 
Of course, what we found from that particular period is that those that panicked and took money out or did other things with their money may have missed the giant wave of what we found to be the longest bull market in the history of the stock market, if I'm not mistaken. So what lessons are there to be learned? And in particular, the phrase timing the market. What does that mean? Is there ever a time that you should be engaging in that function? I think if you are involved in timing the market at all, one of the questions you have to ask yourself before you get into playing that game is have a process. So if I sell one thing, what am I going to buy in place of it? What is going to be my mechanism for actually getting back in? And if you don't have those answers, or if they're emotionally driven answers, then you need to just stay in the game. That's the way that you handle that kind of stuff. Now, you're talking about yourself as a millennial not having that much money lost. However, you probably had parents that were very close to retiring at that time, so you actually probably experienced it in your own way, shape, or form, how that recession has impacted you either directly or indirectly. As a quick sidebar for those parents out there, how much should they try to teach their kids or in this case, adult kids so that they aren't panicking or making decisions that are overly emotional? Or is that not the job of parenting? I think part of it's the job of parenting, but I also think part of that is there's a cognitive side and there's an emotional side. I have some clients that just need the context and need the analysis and know that I'm on top of it. I have other clients that just need a hug. It just really depends on your personality <laughs> with, with, with the money. Um, one way that I have found that I am navigating this, and it's been very helpful for me, and I just happen to have this very unique situation. The market bottomed on March 9th, 2009. My son was born on March 10th, 2008. My daughter was born March 10th, or Mar I'm sorry, March 9th, 2010. So they were born one year on either side of the bottom of the market. So when I look at that, and I look at how that happened, like my, from the time my son was born until the bottom hit, the market was down 45%. From the bottom till the time my daughter was hit, the market went up 73%. If I look at how it did from birth to birth, the market was down 5%. That's really not that unreasonable. And what I've also found is that when I deal with clients that are getting kind of antsy, and I share that, I said, tell me when your wedding anniversary was, or tell me when your kids were born, and let's look at how the market has done since that event, because then you can tie it to a memory as opposed to an, a, a personal event, as opposed to a market media sensationalized event. It seems to take a lot of the edge off and they feel that, okay, this will pass. And that's true. It will pass. It's just a matter of, I think what makes it different this time is one, the speed at which the market's gone down is unprecedented. As we have more digital and we have more algorithms and we have more quantitative funds that are trading this stuff happens very quickly. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, comparing this to other downturns. So you just clarified one comparison that it seems to be quicker than any other that we've had. It is currently tied to coronavirus. I know we're going to talk about the oil dispute that came right afterwards. And then there is the political environment that we've been dealing with, I'll leave it at that, uh, all seeming to be things that you read 
Is it just all of those things coming together as a perfect storm from what you can tell? Or is it the fact that people have so much information available to them that then they can also make snap judgments about their investments and we're seeing this whiplash back and forth? I, I think a big thing is it's the uncertainty. Look at the flu. Everyone talks about how the flu kills more people per year than what the coronavirus will do. Thing is, we have those numbers and we have a baseline, and we don't have as much uncertainty. Here, with the coronavirus, we have a heck of a lot of uncertainty. How many people are going to get it? How does it affect the supply chain? When you look at the steel inventories in China right now, they are super high. Um, you look at the supply chain numbers and how much it's, it's just been disrupted. That's creating uncertainty. How many events are being canceled? How's that going to affect caterers? How's that going to affect the person making $15 an hour? That's what's causing all the, the, the flu is a baseline and everybody understands that's going to hit every year. They know how many beds that'll take up in hospitals. With the coronavirus, nobody knows. They, you look at Italy, which is a much older population, how many people are affected there compared to South Korea, which is a younger population. It's, it, all we're reacting to is the uncertainty of the impact economically. You're mentioning the different areas globally that have been in the news as being the most impacted, at least at this point. Is that something else that's made this downturn unique that never before in history is there such a global market that, like you mentioned, China and the supply chains? I think today I was even hearing reports about certain drugs may be in short supply because they are manufactured in China and there may not be as much of those to go around, not even for treating this particular illness, but other illnesses that people might have that they need a regular regimen of drugs for might be in shorter supply. So how does the global economy and what that is today compared to other downturns? I think the global economy has some impact from a couple of different perspectives. Number one, I learned that Italy gets 16% of its GDP from tourism. That's mm. been shut down. Lots of people on spring break, they're not, they aren't going anymore. Um, I think that is just one of the various many things that we have to think about. There's been there are now 20 free trade agreements that are around for this particular market as opposed to the dot-com bubble. That's how many free trade agreements have been, have been signed. So therefore, when you have those free trade agreements and you have people being able to travel so much easier it, and, and the impact on tourism, yes, it's definitely global. I mean, if you look at the S&P 500, I believe that 50% of all revenue comes from international countries. Right. So that's, you know, it, it's definitely much more correlated than it's probably ever has been. And it might be a good time for us to emphasize, you mentioned travel. And like I said at the intro, we are focusing on the economics and the financial impact. I want to reiterate for folks listening again that we're not making any recommendations about your travel plans or whatever else you do to protect yourself in that arena, we're talking specifically of what may come to pass with the financial aspect. So I think that's probably worth mentioning a couple of times as we continue our discussion. So you mentioned a couple of sectors there as far as travel. Um, how important does diversification become when we hit 
a potential bear market. Um, and also from the standpoint of you have presumably more investment options today as a regular investor than you would before. So um, what should you be looking at as far as your overall diversification? I think diversification is probably best highlighted with the um, oil war that started last weekend. Right. So if you look at, so for those that don't know, um, Saudi Arabia and Russia got into a little fuel fight, if you will, and they're both increasing production. And when they did, oil prices, the price for a barrel of oil went down 30% just like that. So that creates opportunities. It also creates threats. So if you, if, if, to have the oil price change that dramatically, it's going to affect a lot of people. Um, a lot of people believe that the fracking industry in the United States, I mean, the U.S. is the biggest exporter of oil right now because of all the new technologies that we've created in that space. At $30 a barrel, it may not be profitable for them to even try and get it. So therefore, they, they may have to shut down or consolidate. Um, if the... If the Saudi Arabia and Russia are going to pump oil, they're going to need a place to store it. So tankers are going to be in high demand. Did I know that was going to happen? No. But one thing, if I'm diversified, I'm not playing, placing any big bets on tankers or on oil producers or on, for the coronavirus, on Delta or cruise lines. Because if I, if I was concentrated, I'd be in deep yogurt right now. It's, this is probably a great reason why you're diversified. And part of being diversified is always having to say you're sorry about something, whether it's the bond side of your portfolio in some aspects or the stock side of your portfolio. Um, look at REITs. REITs are real estate investment trust. If everyone starts working from home and companies say, hey, we didn't lose a lot of productivity, I see a lot of corporate office buildings that are going to be vacant in the future. I don't think I want to be owning those corporate companies that, that actually rent out that real estate. That could be a real problem for them down the road. Do I know that's going to happen? No, but that's one reason I want to stay diversified. And that also probably ties back into timing the market as well. Picking a certain industry or sector has that same potential high risk, high reward. Of course, so do individual stocks like some of the companies that you named as well. So you may pick a winner, you may not, but history has shown that very few people, air quotes, know for sure what a sure thing is, because there's not such a thing as a sure thing in the stock market. No, not even close. Let's talk about bonds a little bit. And you mentioned, uh, yeah, having to say you're sorry if uh, you have a certain investment that doesn't perform the way other ones do at any time. And something else that's been in the news is the interest rates. One thing I will say that feels like a bit of deja vu is calling upon the central banks to lower interest rates. I don't know if I've heard the quantitative easing phrase come up again or not, but certainly they are very much in the news and very much in the conversation again. And the treasury yields are also very much so. Can you tell us about the relationship between bond prices, like in particular, if you're dealing in ETFs, mutual funds, and then ultimately those interest rates when you do purchase those, are they an inverse relationship? Are they sort of working together? What does that look like? So when you hear that treasury yields are going down, that means the price is going up. In a lot of ways, it's no different from a dividend stock. So if 
say Capital One goes from 100 to 200 in price, and the dividend yield goes down in half, that's because the yield is a function of the price. So for interest rates and for treasury yields, if the price goes up, the yield goes down. So if you hear that the yield's going down for your refinancing purposes or what have you, and you hear that the that means the price of the bond is going up because so many people are running into bonds because they need to find a place to either park their money or they're trying to make a quick buck. Okay, so what would that potentially mean for what types of bonds to get in the current environment or does it mean anything other than staying the course? I, I think if you're in an aggregate bond fund, you're not going to, you avoid making mistakes and you have regret minimization to avoid any sort of emotional catastrophe that may exist. That said, bonds are divided into very different categories. One is high yield. High yield bonds tend to be linked to the energy um, sector. Um, because of the debt that they have to take on to actually extract the oil. So therefore, if energy's getting hit, high-yield bonds are going to get hit. Corporate bonds, if companies are going to make less money, the probability that they default on their loans and their debt and their bonds goes up. So people may run out of those, and they run into U.S. Treasuries. Which So you can have corporate bonds, you can have government bonds, you can have high-yield bonds, you can have high-quality bonds. Regardless, you always have to be on your guard if you're trying to play that game. And right now, if, if the stock market keeps going down, some people may have to borrow money from their bond allocation to pay off any sort of margin or debt that they have on their loans to, to buy stocks, and therefore they're going to get punished as well. Also, bond yields right now are at record lows, and they're not nearly as attractive and I have no idea if they're going to be able to provide the same level of diversification that they have in the past. The, the relationship makes sense um, as far as if it's in demand, of course, then the prices are going up and may be in demand because that's where people are naturally fleeing to, especially in times like this. Is that kind of the yes. main theme to make sure people they're, get? They're going for safety, and the, and the highest form of safety is U.S. government bonds because corporate bonds are – are suspicious right now because nobody knows what their future cash flows are based on how business may be disrupted by the coronavirus. Okay, makes sense. Stepping back into Main Street a little bit, with the interest levels being low, something that I know I wanted to make sure I locked in with the last downturn was mortgage uh, when I could. And I think, well, I'm in my house five years now, and I thought that was a once-in-a-lifetime event. Here we are five years later, and it turns out maybe it wasn't a once-in-a-lifetime event. Is that something that people should be looking at at this point as we keep hearing the calls for interest rates to go down and go down? I think people should look at it, and they should look at it quickly in case it rebounds and it's no longer a, an attractive alternative. Um, my credit union has a 15-year at two and three-eighths. It has a 30-year at two and seven-eighths right now. That's pretty attractive. They also have a notice on their website saying, due to the number of refinancings, our backlog is higher than normal, and we will get back to you as quickly as we can, but it won't be as quick as, as, as our expectations are. So that just shows you that everybody's running there right now. That increases cash flow. If you use that cash flow appropriately, either to reinvest or to 
or, or do anything like that, that is something to that's I'm sure is an attractive alternative for people. And would you be willing to offer a benchmark? So you just mentioned for your local credit union, is there some other type of standard that I, I should look at? I think credit unions offer probably the best deal. Um, I also think that if you deal with an independent mortgage broker, he will be able to help you very well. I, I have found that going to banks tend to be, one, it's a little too easy, and two, it's a little too pricey. And after all the debacles that, that Wells Fargo has gone through, I'm not sure if I want to actually go through a bank myself. So if you need to, and that's what you're comfortable with, and you trust your guy, banks are great, but please shop around because there's too many good options out there. And is there any rule of thumb to say my current mortgage rate is this, and therefore I should be looking for this amount of points lower to pull the trigger to actually do it, or, hey, the closing costs of refinancing isn't going to be worth it, and I should just stick with what I have? There are several rules of thumb out there, and it depends on who you ask, but your total cost of closing, whether it's points, getting your appraisal done, all the settlement cost, if you can break even on cash flow within 18 months, then I would probably do it. Now, there's lots of things to also consider there. What's the probability you're going to be in that house two years from now, five years from now? Um, that has to be part of the equation as well. It's certainly something people need to be aware of. We might have even mentioned on one of our other episodes the average amount of time somebody spends in their house. Is it seven years? Does that sound right? I think you know that's that right. Yeah. Um, so you think that you're going to be in a certain place for a really long time, but <laughs> uh, the averages are not really in your favor. Even if you had a 15-year, that's only half the amount of time for the loans. So you have to make yeah. sure that those numbers work yeah. out. Yeah, and, and probably the thing that makes this most attractive to me right now is that if bonds in your portfolio are no longer going to offer like 3, 3% real return or, or yield, then do I want that certainty having a lower interest rate in my housing payments? Part of that might be because you have to take more risk in your portfolio in order to get the returns that you need um, to, to retire. So I think that I, I would be very curious to see how this all pans out for people. But this is a cash flow issue. It's also a certainty issue as well. Right. Yes, <laughs> I think that is certainly the case. I will attest to that even for myself. Um, and coming back to some of the standards for retirement, I mentioned I am right on the end of still being a millennial in the different generations. Does the way to react to this current market change depending on how close you are to retirement? The number one risk and the, and the most vulnerable people to this are the people that are getting ready to retire within the next two years. Because sequence of losing 20% in your first year of retirement on your portfolio is very different than losing 20% of your portfolio in your last year of life. Because you've got to make that money last. And where you start from and what your portfolio allocation is, is, is very important. Um, I mean, let's face it. You shouldn't be buying an umbrella once it starts raining. You need to have the umbrella ready to go. So if you are retiring in, within the next couple of years, hopefully that you have you know, throttled back on your risk so that this isn't going to impact you nearly as much as if you were in 100% stocks. And then risk tolerance 
I assume, plays some role in this. Is it any more of a role in a bear market as compared to a bull market? Well, so so risk tolerance, the bad part about risk tolerance scores in general is is it's it's a feeling at the time. I, I assure you that if I gave some people a risk tolerance questionnaire on January 15th, their score would be very different than what their risk score is today. Right. So I think you need to understand what your what is your risk required and what is your risk desired. So what's the minimum risk that you need to have in your portfolio to live the infinite game and, and be able to make it through life without any with minimal sacrifice to your lifestyle? That's the number one thing that matters. It's can I do what I want when I want with my money? That's 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 the bottom line. Well, let me ask you this. Is the ideal client for you somebody that has an inverse risk tolerance? What I mean by that is maybe when you recognize the bull market and they don't get greedy, right? That, hey, this is the amount I need to have to do what I want to do with my lifestyle. But when the downturn happens and maybe they weren't super greedy and didn't get hit as hard with the downturn, are interested in getting real aggressive if they can afford it during a bear market, is that something that you would encourage or how do you deal with somebody that's, again, the inverse of what you tend to think the reactions to uh, this kind of a, a setup? Let's talk about what the, the, the worst scenario is first. The, risk, the worst scenario is that you have a risk tolerance that is lower than your risk required. Mm-hmm. Because then we have to have a conversation about, hey, you're going to have to take more risk than you need to be able to do what you want to do or you're going to have to work longer, or you're going to have to spend less, or you're going to have to save more now. That's, that gets into a lot of, of issues. The best client is the one that it doesn't matter what their risk is because they're going to be able to do everything because they've done such a great job saving that they, don't, they can have any amount of risk that they need. What becomes the interesting conversation is understanding how we respond rather than react. How are we prepared for these type of events? That's, that's the thing that really matters in this equation. And if somebody does say that they have money available and are interested in getting more aggressive, what is your advice on the approach to investing that money, if that even is the right thing to do? The number one thing that everybody should do, regardless of what the market conditions are, is automate good behaviors. So it is very important that you're in a place that if you can contribute $300 a month to some sort of fund, whether it's for retirement or if you've maxed out your retirement funds into some taxable account, put yourself in a position where you can actually do something like that. Um, don't do it just because the market's down 20%, because at that point, you're, while it might be more attractive price-wise, price wise, I don't know how much lower this market's going to go. Markets are emotions. They are people. And they really don't care about you. It's, it's, it, it's, a, um, it's a persona of one, but it's made up of several micro-personas that have different reactions to the market. So in restating that, if I have $10,000, then it would probably be more well-advised to split that up into... 12, let's say, if you're going to do it over the course of a year or whatever you would recommend that time being and put that increased amount into that investment that you're already doing to your point of having the automated behavior so that you're not necessarily going to hit the very bottom and see this 
imagined return, but you've hedged your bets that you're not going to, at the other end, hit a very top. You're somewhere in between so that you're maybe catching a little bit of the good, catching a little bit of the bad, but that's the kind of the way to hedge uh, your bets if you are looking to invest more money and then ultimately put that into your automated behavior. Yeah, the studies have shown that, you know, establishing the system and the habit is very important. But if you told me you had $10,000 and based on what the studies tell me to do, 66% of the time, a lump sum does better. So what I would probably do is let's put in 6,600 right now and let's automate the remaining 3,400 over the next 12 months so that we minimize regret and we're, and we're playing the odds based on what the market conditions have told us in the past. That makes sense. So now I'm really going to put you on the spot. What do you think is the worst economic situation that could come from what we know, at least today? And what would be the best scenario based on what we know today? I don't have the slightest idea. <laughs> well, that's too easy of an answer. You got to give me something. <laughs> I, I use context often to find out where we are in, in various um, aspects of of the market cycle. In 1964, if you go from 1964 to the end of 2019, the average market return per year is 10%. That includes very high inflation in the 70s. If you take out all the inflation, it's actually 6.1%. So 6.1% plus the inflation rate is what you should expect for an annualized return based on the market conditions since 1964. If you look at the past 10 years, our returns were 11.64%. So this little down drop right now shouldn't be unexpected. However, if I look at the, the range of outcomes for that 10-year rolling return, what the annualized return is, it can get down as low as negative 4%. So, I think you have to be prepared for what the moving average is. The average is 6, 6.1 plus inflation. Thing is, we don't get there on one step. We, get, we usually go, we over, overshoot it on one side and undershoot it on the other. So we still have a ways to go to get to that 6.1%. So don't underestimate the emotions of this market and the uncertainty of the coronavirus and the uncertainty of the, of the oil war. And be prepared for it. Hopefully you were prepared for it before it happened. And assuming that people are prepared for it, what are some of the other things to be looking for this year, let's say, in particular? So we talked about refinancing. Uh, of course, I just mentioned if you do have other cash reserves and if you're looking to invest additional funds, what else should people be getting prepared to do in a particular fiscal year where they will more than likely be seeing a negative return? Yeah, so a couple of things in that space. Number one, we had 31% return in 2019. So having a negative return, it's more likely to have a 10% or greater return or a 0% or negative return than between 0 or 10, even though the average is is right between six mm -hmm. and 10, depending on whether or not you're using inflation. So it's comical to me whenever I hear a prediction for the um, low rate returns. Now, getting back to your question. So refinancing, I think, is a great thing to do um, if it makes sense for you. 
Number two, consider a Roth conversion. So a Roth conversion is where you convert an IRA into a tax-free Roth account. Now, making that work may cost you some taxes this year. So make sure you're talking to the right people and understand what it would cost you to do that. But right now, if the market's going down 20%, you could very easily be in a position where you do that conversion and catch the upside and catch it tax-free. Um, the third thing is talking about that additional cash flow or having money go to work. In my January newsletter, um, one of the things that I highlighted was that if you got in the market, if you put $100,000 to work in August of 2000, and you just let it go for until August of 2017, it would have been up 4.8%, I believe, is how much it would have been up. For. Maybe 4.4. I can't remember right off the top of my head. If you also put in $100,000 in August of 2000, but then decided to add $500 a month until August of 2017, your returns would have been 4% higher. So imagine that. You had gone through the dot-com bubble and the great financial crisis, and your returns, because you decided to automate a good behavior and, start, and have a good habit, you are now in a place where you can say your returns are 4% higher. That's how you minimize regrets. That's how you take emotions out of the equation. It's with, it's with habits and systems. And one clarification for the Roth conversion, like you said, it could affect what your taxes look like for the year. If you lose enough in your current investments that's above what you convert over to a Roth, does that mean that it would be a push, so to speak, as far as the taxes are concerned? Or is there a different way to look at that when you come time for tax season? So the way that I choose to look at it is that, let's say the market, let's say you have $100,000 in a rollover IRA or a 401k that's been sitting dormant because you started a new job. And now because of the market, it's worth 80000 If you are in the 22% tax bracket and you do that conversion you're going to add $80,000 to your taxable income. And at 22%, that is, and let's just say, once you throw in your state tax, depending on what state you're in, it's 25%. So that eight, making that $80,000 conversion is going to cost you $20,000 now between state and local taxes in this particular example. You can either do that, or you can keep it in the IRA, and that $80,000 becomes $320,000, and you're paying those taxes later. So to me, it's an opportunity to pay the taxes when it's at 80000 as opposed to when it was at 100 or opposed to when it may get to $300,000 in the future. Yeah, and then that way, yeah, you have less of a burden at that time. So pretty hard to, to get it to break even in any particular year, but you're making that move when it will be less painful <laughs> um, tax bracket-wise than right. it would be in other years. And in the future, if you don't, let's say you don't do a full amount of, mm -hmm. of a Roth conversion, you're still going to have other IRA that is taxable, and that's going to put you in a different bracket. So it's going to keep you in a lower bracket in the future, number one. Number two, it's going to make less of your Social Security taxable. And number three, it'll prevent you from potentially um, being taxed on Medicare, because now there's a Medicare premium tax. So if you throw that all into the equation, the long-term benefits of doing this Roth conversion now has, has some really some, a lot of hidden benefits that you may not be thinking about. That makes sense. And it is something that's on my radar, at least, I will say. 
Before we end, let's turn back to Main Street a little bit more. And I'll reference a quote I believe I've heard Mark Cuban say, talking about, hey, even deal with sales at stores and things like that almost as an investment. So I want to say what I remember him comparing is if you see a really good deal on something that uh, wouldn't have an expiration date, like toothpaste or something. And sanitizer. (laughs) Maybe a bad example right now because uh, the price of that stuff is probably going (laughs) to not be going down anytime soon. But, uh, but right. Should you look at anything like that in Main Street that may be going down in price. I hesitate to use travel as example because, again, like I mentioned, we're not making any recommendations as far as how to react to the health and so on. And certainly that's a primary area that's being affected. But we're seeing it in the prices of certainly air, airline tickets right now uh, are, are way, way down, at least from what I've seen in the last couple weeks. Um, are there things like that that you can even put into strategy or would you kind of leave that world uh, separate from investment world? Uh, I, I would leave it separate. I think, I think there's big things you can do. They're going to have a long-term impact. That's like scalping to me. And I don't think that the long-term benefit, I mean, everyone talks about getting the lattes and how a $5 latte is going to ruin your retirement. I think doing that kind of things in terms of things being on a discount in the short term, that's, that's probably more than a lot of people can handle when they have t- working two jobs and they have kids in school and they got to cancel their vacation plans because if they do, they're going to have to have to have a nanny for two weeks because they're in an area affected by the coronavirus and they're not going to be allowed to go back to school. So that's already happening. Right. So I, I think that's probably very low on the, on the concern ratio right now for a lot of people. Do you have any recommendations for how often somebody should be paying attention to the market? And you can pull up your phone at any point in the day and see if it's up or down. What's too much and what's too little just to know what's going on with your money? I I think a lot of it is personality-based. I look at it several times a day because that's what I do and I'm I'm process-oriented. If you are emotionally driven and the markets are going to make you um, have a trigger – then I wouldn't look at it at all. Um, if anything, you could still stay in stocks and get into a different type of stock. Get into, you know, as opposed to owning the market, do you own minimum volatility stocks? Do you want to own um, utility companies and Procter and Gamble as opposed to companies that are very dependent on um, customer throughput, if you will, like a Delta or, or a Chipotle? But that's a conversation people should have with themselves and with their financial advisor and with me not knowing. Who's listening to this? It's really not appropriate for me to comment in terms of you know how their unique situation needs to be uniquely treated. And maybe that's a good place for us to conclude that if you do need help, make sure you do your research in whatever area you're in for a financial advisor, preferably a CFP, which I think we have mentioned in some of our prior episodes. And folks should definitely go back to those, I think, for just general financial Uh, information that we have offered here Um, anything else that we may have missed no i I think that uh keep it tight and just say you know focus on control the controllables you know the roth the refinancing automating your behaviors and and turn this into an opportunity and not an emotional threat that sounds like some good advice for us to end on jc again i appreciate you taking some time to talk to us today on this very important subject thanks for having me If you enjoyed this episode, 
please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit suburbanfolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of the recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The participants on this podcast are not responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information or opinions discussed or their use. All investments are subject to investment risk, including loss of principal. Individuals should consider if an investment is suitable for them by reference their own financial situation with their own financial professional before executing any financial decisions.